Okay, everybody, welcome to Lunch and Learn. In previous presentations in our criminal justice reform series, we've heard about the restorative justice process and the Criminal Justice Collaborative Council that we have here in Washtenaw County and how such initiatives can positively affect outcomes of those who enter the court system on state and local levels. Today's presentation, Stopping the Prison Pipeline, the importance of youth justice advocacy focuses on the experience of youth in the courts. Our scheduled presenter, Mary King, was called away on family business, and we are fortunate to have as our speaker today, Hussein Hadri, currently Community Outreach and Engagement Manager at the Michigan Council for Youth Justice. But first, if you're new here, a bit about us. The League of Women Voters is a non profit voter education organization, encouraging informed and active participation in government. We believe that voting is a fundamental citizen right that must be guaranteed. While the league does not support parties or candidates, we do take position on issues that we have studied. Our programs will not necessarily represent these positions, but provide forums to increase understanding of public policy concerns. The phrase school to prison pipeline describes the way strict discipline in the form of suspensions and expulsions for simple infractions falls disproportionately on black and brown students and pushes them out of school and into the growing system of mass incarceration. A recent study from Harvard, Boston University and the University of Colorado confirms this phenomenon. As the researchers wrote in Education Next, our findings show that early censure of school misbehavior causes increases in adult crime, that there is in fact a school to prison pipeline. Any effort to maintain safe and orderly school climates must take into account the clear and negative consequences of exclusionary discipline practices for young students and especially young students of color, which last well into adulthood. The researchers also stated misbehaving peers can have strong negative impacts on other students in the classroom. And all students need a safe, predictable environment to learn. But our findings show that the school to prison pipeline is real and poses a substantial risk for students in strict school environments. As the outcomes for such things are, such as a higher likelihood of adult incarceration, also pose substantial problems for society as a whole. So we, on our program today, we're gonna to start discussing these issues and let's talk about the schools. We can all recognize that all students need a safe environment to thrive, but what can be done to ensure that students arrive in the classroom ready to learn then misbehave? And when misbehavior occurs, what can be done to mitigate its effect, not only on others in the classroom, but on the student exhibiting the behavior? The Michigan Council for Youth Justice is the relatively new name for the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency. Its mission addresses these questions. For 60 years, this organization has worked within communities on crime prevention strategies, promoting fair and equitable access to justice, expanding community-based alternatives to incarceration, and improving outcomes through safe and effective treatment. This multi-pronged approach aims to stop the school to prison pipeline. Our speaker, Hussein Hadri, joined MCYJ in February, 2021 as their community outreach and engagement manager. Previously, 
he volunteered in the organization's successful Raise the Age campaign to keep those under 18 out of the court system, the adult court system. He currently works on programs such as Debt-Free Justice, which aims to standardize court fees and fines across the state, as well as encouraging those who have been in the youth justice system to share their stories in an effort to make their experiences more visible. He is also pursuing a master's of business administration at Wayne State with the intent to one day attend law school. Hussein is also very politically and civically engaged and currently serves as a Canton Township Commissioner. Before MCYJ, Hussein worked at Voters Not Politician and the ACLU while also managing and staffing several political campaigns. Mr. Hadry, welcome. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And thank you guys so much for having me here um, to talk about a very important issue and an issue that's you know pretty near and dear to my heart. I just wanna start by saying that one of the things that we think about a lot at the Michigan Center for Youth Justice is the way that we talk about our audience, uh, the way that we talk about our supporters. Uh, and you know we're very, very intentional with the way that we describe uh, people that think about youth justice and are thoughtful about um, you know, what kinds of solutions we need to implement in our state. And so I tend to refer to our volunteers as youth justice advocates, because you're not a volunteer for MCYJ. That's not your identity. Your identity is going to be um, being an advocate for youth justice in the state of Michigan, um, because so much work needs to be done. Now, Shelly got a little bit into our mission and vision and the history of our organization. I'm just going to highlight a few things. Um, our vision is a fair and effective justice system for Michigan's children, youth, and young adults. Uh, and with that means is that at every point in the process that a kid is involved in the justice system or with someone that can provide them uh, care to help them, you know, rectify some of the wrongs that they've, uh, that, you know, that they've committed in their life or mistakes that they've made. Um, we want to make sure that the whole, that every point in that process is fair and it leads to an effective outcome uh, for promoting justice in our state uh, and, and, and in our country. I also want to mention um, that, you know, there's a couple of buzzwords here on the slide, trauma-informed, racially equitable, socioeconomically and culturally responsive. Uh, these are these are more than just, um, you know, platitudes and, and buzzwords. These are the values that drive um, our organization's work. We need to make sure that we're addressing some of the racial inequities uh, in our justice system. You know, the data, the data show that uh, different socioeconomic classes in our state are treated very differently by the youth legal system. Um, and, you know, these are, it, you know, that is counter to our fair and effective justice system that we're working toward. So understanding and responding to those socioeconomic inequities, those racial inequities um, is at the core of our work. Um, also a part of that is introducing community-based solutions, knowing that, you know, we can implement outcomes on the state level but at the end of the day, communities are going to be the ones that have to accept their youth uh, and really take care of them. So that is the work that MCYJ does. Um, a little bit about our, about our history. It was uh, the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency, as Shelley mentioned, uh, was founded in 1956 in response to the Jackson prison riots. Uh, you know, there were inhumane living conditions. There was a lot of attention paid to that issue and a lot of energy devoted to that issue. And so the Michigan Council on Crime, on Crime and Delinquency um, you know, really took uh, that opportunity to do a significant amount of work. And over our 60 years um, ad of advocacy, we've accomplished a lot of things for youth. Um, you know, prison overcrowding projects, um, 
you know, we're working on uh, expanding youth diversion programs, prevent, you know, preventing violence by and against children. Uh, these are the issues that really animated our work. I would say that our signature achievement was to raise the age campaign, um, which raised the, um, the age of considering youth as adults in the, in the justice system from 17 to 18, which, and that went into effect today. And that has had uh, an incredible impact on people's lives, and it's going to. You know, kids that are 17 years old aren't considered adults in any other setting. Uh, and they were considered adults in the court setting until just this year. Uh, and so we believe that that's going to have far-reaching uh, far positive consequences on our youth legal system, but that's not where the work ends. Um, and so considering that, you know, there's so many other changes that need to be that need to be made. And there's no other organization in the entire state that is uh, youth justice focused. Uh, the Michigan Center, for, the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency went on, went through a strategic rebrand um, and we became the Michigan Center for Youth Justice in 2020. Um, and, you know, that really is to help us realign with our mission, our core mission of youth justice reform. And so this is a little bit about who we are. Um, Jason Smith, uh, who's head shot, you see here is the executive director. Heidi Frankenhauser is our deputy director. Um, Gabrielle Dresner is our policy associate. And I'm gonna pause here and say that I'm gonna talk a lot about uh, youth justice as an issue, a lot about you know the policy problems and the data, um, but I am not the expert on you know our, uh, our issues. Gabby is the one that does all the research and uh, really helps put together a lot of this information in a way that you know, we can understand and in a way that we can advocate for solutions. Um, so I'll answer your questions to the best of my ability, but when there's questions that I can't answer, it's going to go back to Gabby and she's really going to have to um, to help you out there. But I you know, will do my best to answer all of your questions and get the answers that I don't have. Um, Afav is our communications and development coordinator. She does a lot of work to help us with volunteers, help us with uh, you know, our newsletters, our social media, and so many other things. Um, David Rosen is our director of development. Um, I'll mention here that MCYJ is a heavily grant-funded organization, and David helps make all that possible. And then there is little old me. <laughs> I'm the outreach and engagement manager, as Shelly mentioned. I am responsible for uh, helping the Michigan Center for Youth Justice develop relationships across the state with different organizations that have some stake in a fair and effective youth justice system. Um, but what that also means is that I get to um, speak to organization, organizations like the League of Women Voters uh, and really spread the word. Um, but I, what I'll say, <clears throat> what I'll say is that the most important part of my job is changing the narrative about youth justice. Uh, I ask every, you know, everywhere that I go, I, I like to ask people like, what do you know about youth justice? And the people, you know, that the vast majority of people say that they don't know much at all. And those that are, you know, brave enough to share something say, well, we know about juvie, right? Just like, you know, residential or detention facilities for youth. Uh, but that is not, you know, that's a small part of our, of our system. It's a significant part of our system and it has far-reaching consequences. Um, but there's so much more that has to do with, that has to do with youth. Even that term juvie, um, carries certain certain connotations. And so my job, the biggest part of my job is changing the narrative about youth justice so that people can know, um, you know, what challenges there are and what solutions there are to those challenges. And that's what this presentation is going to be about today. And before I get into that, I also want to talk about our philosophy for the juvenile justice system, um, for the youth legal system. 
uh, one of the core uh, th you know values that we believe in, or and this is you know born out by the science and the and the research, is that youth are developmentally different from adults, uh, and you know your the brain is not fully developed until you're in your mid twenties, and what that means is you know the decision making process is very different. Um, you know, reacting to various, you know, stimuli in the environment, uh, making mistakes in high pressure situations, uh, you know, failure to judge a situation, you know, appropriately. These are all the result of being developmentally different from adults um, and, you know, having the less of a biological ability to make decisions, you know, at, at, at the best level. And this isn't a, rec a recent development. This is part of a long-standing um, belief in the legal system that you should be treated differently. Um, and the science has borne that out. Uh, and so that is one of the core assumptions that we make in our work. Um, the other the principle that I wanna talk about is uh, the weighing of public safety against the best interests of the youth. You know, public safety is a priority uh, when making any decisions, but it has to be balanced about uh, against what is best for the youth. You know, one of the, um, one of the challenges here is that communities Want to have you know want to be safe, but as I'll talk about in the presentation, some of those measures they take for safety can come at the expense of the youth's mental health or the ability of the youth to uh, to reform whatever mistake that they've made. And so we're advocating for that balance uh, in that in that scenario. The last thing I'm going to mention here is that we advocate for a lot of age appropriate services and that means age appropriate services and then situation appropriate services. So, you know, a lot of these situations um, come during, you know, incidents of mental health uh, problems or substance abuse. Uh, we wanna, you know, make sure that in every scenario we're treating people with the, um, people with respect to their particular issue rather than trying to paint with a broad brush. and. You know, there's obvious challenges there, like budgetary challenges, staffing challenges. Like we can't, you know, one of one of the things we hear is like, you know, we can't have one person dealing with every single kid because we don't have enough staff for that. But the fact of the matter is that if the best interests of the youth are going to be at heart, we need to be willing to front the resources for that. Um, and so that's part of what MCYJ advocates for. And one other thing that I want to mention here. So you'll notice that I don't like to use the term juvenile or juvenile delinquent offender. Um, this, you know, super predator term that we find in academia and, um, you know, otherwise language matters. And, you know, part of being a youth justice advocate and part of being an advocate for justice in general is recognizing the way that we talk about justice, uh, you know, to one another and to, um, you know, two, two kids in particular, um, you know, a 14-year-old child is not criminal, right? A 14-year-old child is someone that has made a mistake and, you know, has to, has to see the consequences of that and learn from that. But they're not juvenile delinquents or offenders or super predators. These are kids, right? Um, these are justice-impacted young people. These are youth. These are the terms that we need to be using um, because in order for us to make the biggest changes for, um, you know, for the for the best interest of the youth, we have to make sure that we're talking about youth as youth. You need to take away the stigma um, that comes with being associated with the justice system. So I'll encourage all of you to do the same thing. And here I want to draw the line between what we do versus what we don't do. 
So the Michigan Center for Youth Justice does not work with individual youth um, on their legal cases. Uh, there are organizations that do that. And so when someone reaches out to us and asks for that kind of support, we refer them to those organizations. But we work um, at the structural change level. We're advocating for change in the state legislature. We're working with counties and juvenile courts uh, to encourage them to change their policies and change their ways of funding. Um, to change, you know, particular uh, particular aspects of the justice system that can victimize uh, minority youth disproportionately. Uh, that's the kind of uh, work that we do. We do research on um, on how different policies affect affect people, and then we publish reports uh, on that uh, on those um, on those on those policies. So that's the work that we do, and you you can find all of this information on our website, um, which will be shared out to you after the presentation. I want to talk a little bit about Michigan's youth justice system specifically. Uh, so one of the things that is, it's not unique to Michigan, but one of the things that makes unique, uh, that makes Michigan's youth legal system uh, a little more challenging is the fact that it's decentralized. Every single one of the 83 counties in the state of Michigan has its own uh, youth legal system. Uh, and so that, that means that Washington County does its own thing, Wayne County does its own thing. Um, and Grand, Grand Traverse County does its own thing, and there is not necessarily collaboration between these counties. Um, there's counties that do sometimes work together, that do share resources, but they are not required to do so. And you know, the counties that um, are working independently often uh, often face challenges because of that, because they're recreating the wheel on a lot of you know on a lot of uh, a lot of the resources that they're creating. What this also means, what this also leads to, is what at the Michigan Center for Youth Justice, we like to call justice by geography. If you live in Canton, Michigan, which is kind of at the, at the border of uh, Wayne County and Washington County, that's where I grew up, uh, you're going through the Wayne County uh, youth legal system. But if you grew up not too far away in Ipsy, Michigan, Ypsilanti, Michigan, um, you're going through the Washington County um, youth legal system. And so, that, you know, it's not, it's not as though I am very different growing up in Cannes, Michigan than a youth in Ipsy, Michigan. Um, but it's the fact that our system is so decentralized that we would have entirely, we, we can have entirely different outcomes um, because you know, our state hasn't centralized a lot, of the, um, a lot of the standards and a lot of the resources. The second thing I wanna mention here is that while we have an upper age limit now, the Raise the Age uh, campaign changed the upper age limit from, uh, from 17 to 18. Um, we don't have a lower age limit. So that means kids that are very, very young can be a part of, you know, can be considered for um, some of these offenses. And, you know, we see cases where there's, you know, a 12, 14 year old kid, um, you know, having to, having to come into court, you know, and that is not an experience that, you know, anyone should have, you know, part of our, our partnerships is we're working with the um, with Michigan Medicine's pediatric program, and I work with these residents every uh, every month. Um, and you know, I hear them talking about how youth are different. And one of one of the residents mentioned to me um, a few weeks ago the impact that shackling can have on youth. Just the just the um, just the experience of having you know chains on you as a kid uh, that restrict your movement. That's a traumatic experience. And having that experience at a really young age can be very, very detrimental um, to mental health outcomes later on in life, to academic outcomes later on in life, to job, uh, to, you know, to, to being, to employment outcomes later on in life. 
And so this is really, this is also a really vital, um, it was a really critical project that we're working on. Um, but yeah. Okay, so at this point, I wanna shift the structure of this presentation to um, a problem and solution um, structure. So this is, uh, you know, I, what, what, I, what I would like here is to talk about all of the challenges or many of the challenges in our, in our youth justice system. Um, but I also wanna talk about solutions because those are, you know, equally important. You know, I, I don't want anyone walking out of this presentation or finishing this, uh, you know, finish watching this video thinking like, oh, it's hopeless, right? Because there is a lot of hope. Uh, we can't solve all of the problems in our youth legal system, but we can start to address a lot of them. Um, and your role as an advocate for youth justice will go a long way in addressing these problems. And I, you know, I hope to demonstrate that in the next couple of slides. The first problem I wanna talk about is that there's no real time accounting for who is in the system. The state and the counties, um, the mission, you know, the state of Michigan and the individual counties are spending a combined total of at least $400 million every year on youth justice. Um, and, you know, despite this, no one in the state knows how many youth are being processed in the courts uh, or their demographics if they receive community based programs or confinement, the types of programming they receive uh, or the results. Um, and, you know, I'll mention this as uh, Shelly mentioned that I'm a uh, I'm getting my Master of Business Administration right now at Wayne State. One of the principles that we learn uh, in business is if you're going to invest in a project, if you're going to invest in a business, you better find a way to measure the success of that investment. You have to be able to understand where that money is going and how it's being used. And so as taxpayers, we have a responsibility to find out um, to find out where that money is going. And the counties and the state have a responsibility to show us um, but right now, there is no centralized way of collecting that data. The majority of counties are reporting some of that data to the state court administrator's office, um, but not all do, and some of them don't report any at all. Um, and so that's that's a pretty significant challenge. Um, and so one of the solutions that we present to that um, is that advocate. One of the things that advocates can do is uh, raise awareness that Michigan doesn't have this, uh, you know, data collection. Uh, framework. We need to implement a statewide data collection system to capture and report demographics and outcome information. Uh, there's simply no other way. Uh, you know, like I said, a $400 million investment with no with no measurement, um, that's ludicrous and it should be outrageous to every, every taxpayer in our state. Um, but I also want to mention that there are racial inequities, um, which we'll get to in a moment, that play a large role here. Uh, and we need to impose, you know, a level of urgency on these legislators to say, like, you know, we need to know what is happening in the system. We we don't we have an idea of what kinds of racial inequities and what kinds of challenges, um, like, you know, kids are going through uh, on the state level. But we can't speak with, uh, you know, with a lot of clarity and a lot of confidence on exactly what those are until we have um, data collection. And so, so one thing advocates can do is reach out to their legislators, reach out to their juvenile court, reach out to their county commission and get that information. Okay, um, another one of the problems that, uh, you know, that we face in our state is that um, over 90% of youth arrests in Michigan are for nonviolent offenses. Uh, and of course, there's a disproportionate impact of, um, you know, on on youth of on youth of color, uh, what the research shows 
uh, is that most kids who've committed an offense will just grow out of it. You know, if we did nothing at all, the vast majority of kids will learn from their mistakes and move on. Uh, and so when we have this youth legal response, uh, especially when it's harsh and punitive, what we, can, what we can do is actually cause more harm than good, right? We can end up labeling a kid as an offender or as a juvenile delinquent. And that'll lead to, you know, what the research shows is a self-fulfilling prophecy where some of these kids are like, well, I am a bad kid. And I, you know, bad kids do what bad kids do, you know? And so what we can do is actually cause, um, you know, cause some of these issues to, to be exacerbated. Uh, and so uh, one of the solutions that we prov uh, provide to that is, um, Let's see, there we go. Uh, that we can increase investment and reinvestment in uh, anti-racist trauma-informed prevention strategies uh, before we get to the court involvement. Uh, and that's, this is uh, one thing I'll mention here is like the on-ramps on the, into the youth justice system. Um, we can talk about how kids get out of the youth legal system. Well, there's three ways that they get, uh, that they end up in the youth legal system. Police, schools, and parents, right? And, you know, police schools and parents, this is parents reporting their kids or parents seeking mental health treatment for their, for their kids, recognizing that, that, you know, that the counties are uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of communities, the primary provider of mental health services for kids. Um, schools, you know, referring kids to the, to the uh, youth legal system or police getting involved. Um, we need to increase that, increase investment um, in the anti-racist trauma-informed prevention strategies that you know help kids before they get to court. So when the police or, or when the school and the parents recognize that there's a problem, they're able to step in um, and you know take steps that avoid court involvement later on. That youth legal response that I mentioned later on, um, in order to you know give kids the opportunity to grow out of it and learn from their mistake before they have to pay. Um, you know, exorbitant amounts of money or have to go to, um, have to get into uh, detention facilities. The other thing I wanna talk about is status offenses. So status offenses, these are behaviors that are not legal for adults or that are legal, they're not illegal for adults, excuse me, um, but they are for young people. And the reason we have these is because we wanna encourage a certain level of discipline on youth um, and keep them away from certain things like, you know, under drinking or skipping school. Um, but, you know, this is what the result of that is. 11% of, uh, of youth legal cases are for status offenses. Uh, and what's really interesting is that girls are overrepresented in status offenses. Um, and so this is where, you know, girls enter the youth legal system. Um, but let me explain this a little bit. So a kid comes into the system because they were skipping school or this is something they weren't supposed to be doing, right? And they, you know, get off with probation. They, you know, they come off probation. They you know, sign an agreement and they're off, um, and that prevents them from going into det detention. Um, but that probation comes with a long list of conditions. Like they got to show up on time. They got to be doing their homework. They got to be, you know, filling out certain reports uh, and other things, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on, and these are very long lists. Um, but if they violate a single one of those conditions of their probation, the court can lock them up. Uh, and so, you know, a small mistake like skipping school or, you know, something, something that you're not supposed to be doing, but something that doesn't deserve 
you know, that doesn't mean you deserve getting locked up. A kid will end up being locked up for, for a significant period of time. And we'll talk about, you know, what that out of home placement or detention can actually end up costing financially. Uh, and that's not even to mention the mental health uh, consequences it can have later on in the future. And so, you know, that's, that's the story of how a status offense can lead to confinement. Um, but one of the other problems I want to mention here is that LGBTQ youth are overrepresented in the youth legal system um, as a result of status offenses and lower level offenses. You know, approximately 20% of youth in the youth legal system um, or in youth uh, legal facilities identify as LGBTQ, right? And that's three times the estimated number um, of youth in the U.S., uh, they're more likely to be arrested, held in detention. They're more likely to experience uh, sexual victimization um, and so many other challenges that they face. They're already at risk uh, in our society because of the, you know, of the stigma um, associated with their identity. But also, you know, when they're in these facilities or when they're going through the youth legal system, um, they're overrepresented and then they face additional challenges on top of that. And so we pr have proposed a different solution um, to these problems. Uh, you know, one of, the, uh, one, one, one of the things that we can do is reduce the number of youth entering the youth legal system as a result of school-based arrests, right? School resource officers who are basically just police officers in, in schools are, um, are a big part of this. And, you know, there are schools in our community um, who are, are in, our, in our state who have school resource officers, but they don't have social workers, right? Or they have more social worker, or they have more school resource officers than social workers. Mary King, who was supposed to rep, who was supposed to uh, do this presentation earlier, um, unfortunately, she had a conflict. But she, you know, she talks about how, um, you know, there was a school in New York that had six school resource officers and not a single social worker. Um, that you know, that really shows where the priorities are uh, in that school district, but. You know, understanding uh, from a youth legal, from a youth justice perspective, how we allocate our resources, um, you know, is really important to understanding how, you know, what those outcomes are going to be. Because if we have more school resources, school resource officers, which we've talked about are on ramps to the youth legal system, and we have less social workers who are off ramps to the youth legal system, we are much more likely to have youth entering the legal system than otherwise. And that is not an outcome that we should find desirable. So one of the other things that we wanna talk about is um, reducing confinement of youth for status offenses. Uh, and here's where uh, you know, your role as advocates can come in as well. Um, we wanna build support for the passage of legislation to restrict uh, you know, juvenile court's ability to confine, um, confine youth, you know, even for violations of probation. Um, I mentioned before that, you know, the probation comes with a long list of conditions. Um, and, you know, a lot of these kids end up, you know, in, uh, on probation for nonviolent offenses, non-serious or, or non-serious offenses in the sense that they're not offenses that will lead to uh, providing or, or presenting a greater risk to society later on. We want to build public support for legislation that's going to, that's going to restrict some of that ability to, uh, to detain kids. Uh, and this is where you can also lean in on, lean on your legislators uh, and provide that kind of pressure. I also wanna talk about here, one of the bigger challenges or one of the bigger challenges that we face in our state, um, you know, it's equal access to justice. 
for kids that weren't able to be diverted or even just get access to, for kids that uh, want to be diverted or want access to diversion, they need adequate legal representation. And the Supreme Court of the United States uh, has said that kids uh, need to have good uh, legal representation and they deserve it. Um, but what we find is that kids uh, waive their right to counsel pretty often and they don't make good decisions. And this leads to them sinking even deeper into the system. And Michigan in particular is one of the worst states in, this, in the nation uh, for a kid, you know, to be a kid in the legal system. Um, you'll see we're ranked 44th in the nation um, and attorney fees play a big role in, in um, the lack of uh, equal access to justice. So the solutions, uh, the solution is to provide or is to improve quality uh, juvenile defense uh, for youth that can't afford it. Uh, the, National, the National Juvenile Defender Center um, at the request of the Michigan Supreme Court uh, completed a report last year and made recommendations about the youth legal system. And one of the big ones was that they need, that we need to improve access to representation for youth. Um, and uh, th this is, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, neighbors and as friends of, of youth, uh, as former youth, uh, you know, I, I like to consider myself a youth still. Um, this is a big issue for me because uh, knowing that a kid can go through the legal system, which is already very, very challenging for even an adult uh, and have to go through that without adequate legal representation. When our goal is to provide kids the opportunity to lead productive lives in the future, um, that is just outrageous. Uh, and this is, uh, this is where our role as advocate, uh, advocates comes in. The way that Michigan law is set up uh, is that, you know, confinement uh, has like, has declined to some extent, um, but it's still among the highest, uh, Michigan is still among the highest in the nation um, for uh, youth confinement. And in our, in our state in particular, racial disparities are pretty staggering. Um, and African-American youth are five times as likely as white youth to be incarcerated. Uh, and you know, youth that have, been, uh, that have been incarcerated are likely to be rearrested uh, for a felony offense within two years of their release. And this goes back to what I was talking about with uh, kids are you know, pretty likely to grow out of the mistakes that they make initially if we do nothing at all. This youth legal response often leads to future issues. Uh, and the research uh, is pretty robust here. It says that you know, kids that, become, that feel like they've been labeled as bad kids will go on to act that way because that's the identity that they've been given. And so the you know the solution you know is that community-based programs uh, are are really important. They have proven time and time again uh, to be uh, more effective than confinement. You know, at improving problem behavior, uh, even like family relationships. You know, a community-based solution that empowers that gives parents the opportunity to um, address some of the challenges and repair some of their relationships. Uh, it, you know, these go a long way and they cost far less. They cost far, far less than detention and confinement. So we need to expand these community-based services and decarceration strategies. Uh, there's, you know, there's grants and so many, um, so many projects and initiatives that help people in, in their communities. Uh, and, you know, find out if your community has this, uh, you know, has these, uh, has these resources and advocate for them if your community doesn't. And if your community does, share those out. 
with uh, with your community, make sure that everyone is able to uh, is able to have access to them. But I also want to talk about um, you know the um, how youth the different ways that youth are being harmed in these facilities. Uh, you know, the use of restraints has caused a lot of uh, a lot of injuries in our state. Um, one very serious example is last year, Cornelius Fredericks was, uh, he's a young boy um, and he was improperly restrained. And as a result of that, he was killed. Uh, and this led to a lot, you know, a very public outcry. Part of our work now is working with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services on residential reforms that we're, um, you know, hoping to introduce and, uh, you know, avoid some of these situations from happening again. But also, you know, aside from all of that, there's other uh, other forms of uh, of harm that can happen uh, during confinement, like solitary confinement, isolation. These have mental health consequences. Uh, more than half of all suicides in, in juvenile facilities occurred while young people were held in isolation. This is not the outcome that we're looking for in our youth legal system, and we need to draw attention to this. And so, you know, one of the solutions to that is improving transparency, accountability, and oversight uh, of, of youth detention centers and residential facilities. We should never, you know, we should never be using physical restraints and solitary confinement or seclusion for confined youth. That is not a viable solution. It might be an easier solution for those that are you know, that are uh, responsible for those for those facilities. But that is not the right solution. There's no, there's none of the research that's been done on this shows that that is an effective solution at uh, preventing whatever situation um, that youth are uh, that youth are going through. Um, but we also need to create, you know, an oversight committee that's uh, that's able to, you know, independently evaluate these different policies and different situations um, and provide their uh, and provide their opinion in a way that. Um, that is independent and considers all the sides, but is still putting the best interests of the youth, uh, you know, forward. And here, I want to mention some data about your county in particular, Washington County in particular. So, Black youth comprise about seventeen uh, percent of the population, but in terms of arrests, they're far higher. Uh, and then in detention placements, it's even closer. It's almost fifty percent, almost half of detention placements in Washington County. Are black youth, right? And this long and, and long-term confinement, they're a little bit overrepresented as well. Um, and so this is something that you know, this is also something that's outrageous. Uh, one of the one of the things that we hear a lot is that we want a youth legal system that is colorblind, and that's okay, and that's a good sentiment that we want a youth we want a legal system that does not see race. But the fact of the matter is that if our legal system does not see race, well, instead of uh, destroying those racial disparities, what it does is it entrenches those racial disparities. Uh, understanding that those three on-ramps I was talking about, schools, police, and parents, um, some of the on-ramps in, uh, in our youth legal system uh, have disproportionately referred youth of color to the youth legal system. And so if the youth legal system is all of a sudden colorblind, and it's not anti-racist. What happens is that those initial disparities become entrenched and we have more disproportionate outcomes for youth of color. When instead what we should be doing is proposing solutions that are racially conscious uh, and based in the reality of how those on-ramps are, uh, are, are affecting youth of color.
And then the final problem that I, or one of the final problems that I want to talk about is, uh, you know, the, the cost of being a youth in the youth legal system. Um, Michigan law permits courts to uh, charge youth in the youth legal system with a variety of mandatory and discretionary fines and fees. And this is the project that we're working on uh, the most right now. Uh, this is our focus. Uh, so in addition to charging for attorneys, the state requires counties to charge families for the cost of detention and residential placements. Uh, but it allows courts to waive that if uh, you know, that's how the court decides to operate. Now, Washington County isn't charging and Wayne County stopped um, uh, about a year ago. Um, and you know, other counties are, are, have taken steps to do that. Um, the county that we've worked in uh, you know, most uh, recently is Macomb County. Um, where you know Macomb County has worked on this, we just published a report, um, which you can you can get access to um, on our website. And for those that are you know that are on the League of Women Voters email list, you guys will get access to this as well. Um, but you you know in Macomb County, we interviewed 15 families, and we found out that they had an average of eighty thousand dollars in debt. Um, and the eighty thousand dollars that's you know that's a pretty incredible number. But I want to, you know, mention like some of these fines and fees are uh, pretty incredible. Like, you know, one of the there's a bizarre case of a family in which um, the youth had stolen the family's car, and the family is now paying restitution to the court uh, for the car that was stolen by the member of their family, right? And so there's this weird, uh, you know, that's not a situation that's productive for anybody, um, and you know, the family is now lost twice. Right now, the family is facing significant challenges, uh, and if they can't, you know, if they can't pay their fines and fees, and they can't, you know, they can't get a waiver, uh, and it's a very complex system to get that kind of a waiver, then they're going to carry that debt for a long time, and the court can capture their wages, tax returns, um, you know, stimulus checks, and it can follow, it can follow youth forever almost. You know, the, when you turn eighteen, that you know debt doesn't go away; it gets transferred from the family to the youth, uh, him or herself. Um, and you know that makes it difficult to find a job or get a line of credit, you know, get a mortgage, right, buy a house, uh, and you know establish good credit. These are challenges that you know even after a youth has reformed their life and they've you know stopped being involved with certain groups um, and they've taken steps to you know improve their life. Now they now there's additional barriers from a mistake that they you know made when they were that young. Um, and so the solution that we're proposing is to eliminate the imposition of discretionary and waivable fines and fees, uh, you know, that, um, that, are, that are burdening our, our youth in our state. Um, we need to build public support. I talked about changing the narrative. This is one of those things. Uh, you know, counties will talk about that they don't have the money to continue to run their court system uh, without these fines and fees. But the fact of the matter is that we need to build our youth legal system, not on a financial, basis or a financial justification. We need to be making policies about our youth legal system based in our values and our assumptions about what a just youth justice system looks like. Um, and you know that means that we shouldn't be charging these, or for what that means for our, our beliefs is that we shouldn't be charging these fines and fees for youth. Um, and so, you know, post information about this on social media, contact your legislator. Um, one thing, I'll, one plug I'll throw in right here is on our website, you can, if you find the, find the debt-free justice page, uh, you can sign 
uh, a letter that goes to, to your elected officials, imploring them to take action on these issues. We have bills pending right now in the state legislature that you know go just to go toward uh, addressing these uh, these fines and fees. Um, and so this is where you can step in as a youth justice advocate. But I want to step back here and just talk about our current priorities on a county level and then a state level. So on the county level in uh, in Kalamazoo County, we're working to create an anti-racist just uh, juvenile justice framework um, to help address the causes of the racial disparities. The racial disparities that I talked about earlier. Um, how do we build a youth legal system in a county that is racially aware and anti-racist, right? Instead of one that's just colorblind, one that addresses the racial injustices um, in, a, in a data-informed way, you know? And so we're working with, we're working with Kalamazoo County on that. Um, the other project that I wanna bring attention to and I talked about LGBTQ uh, youth is that we're working with, um, with Wayne County to you know, advance justice for youth with diverse sexual orientation, gender identity and expression. Um, and you know, Wayne County has been uh, pretty supportive of that, but the, you know, there's challenges uh, that come with that because at every level that we add a wrinkle, there's more resources required, right? And this is part of the reason that we need to be addressing the, the, the rate of confinement for youth. So that's some of the work that we're doing at the county level. At the state level, we have you know, the residential reform project I talked about. We're working with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And then we're also working you know, in the debt-free justice uh, campaign to eliminate those fines and fees on a statewide level, working with the state legislature and we're working to centralize some aspects of the, of the justice, of the legal system for youth. Um, and you know, this, is a, this is a big campaign um, of not only you know, legislative advocacy, but also uh, public education. You know, not a lot of people know about how these fines and fees affect youth. Um, you know, I mentioned the doctors that I work with at, uh, at Michigan Medicine um, uh, a little bit earlier. One of the doctors was telling me that he had a he had a youth that had significant mental health challenges, uh, and he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't continue he wouldn't take his medication uh, as prescribed. You know, on the timeline that he was that he was required to do so. Um, and what he cited were financial problems, right? He had been justice involved when he was significantly younger. And because of those uh, challenges that he faced, he now, uh, you know, is facing more significant challenges uh, related to his mental health. And, uh, you know, those mental health challenges are going even further to affect um, his, his ability to take care of serious health conditions. Uh, and so, you know, these fines and fees have longstanding consequences that are more than just financial. Um, they have to do with the health as well. And I want to mention here, and you know, I, I'll leave this up on a slide. I, I don't want to read all of it, but um, I want to draw attention to the cost of out-of-home placement. Um, you know, out-of-home placement usually the data shows between six to nine months, and say it costs you know three hundred and twenty dollars a day. I'll do the math for you. That's fifty-seven thousand dollars for out-of-home placement for six months. Fifty-seven thousand dollars. You know, you could. Put a kid through college with that. You can buy a brand new Tesla with that. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of money that kids have um, in, in terms of debt. And they, it's not like they went to college and got a degree and um, you know have student loans. This isn't debt that's productive in any way. It's debt that's punitive. Uh, it's punitive, and, and there's no reason for for it to um, for it to continue to set up challenges for youth. 
the state court administrative office I mentioned before um, says that $32 million were assessed in fees across 74 counties, 74 counties because not every county reports this data, but the amount collected was only 8 million. So only a quarter of this money that's or of these fines and fees that are being assessed is even collected, only a quarter, right? And so that you know begs the question, you'll see in the, in the history of the way that these fines and fees were, uh, were imposed, um, you know, you got to ask, like, why is this money being, or why are these fines and fees being assessed in the first place? And what the legislative history will show you is that, you know, in addition to some of, you know, the, the values-based reasons and, you know, we need to make the justice system, we need to, you know, impose the, um, the importance of the justice system and following the law and, uh, you know, strong on crime rhetoric, we need to do all these things. That was part of the reason that some of these fines and fees were expanded. But the other reasons, and time and time again, this has happened. Some one of the other reasons that these fines and fees were expanded so much was financial, right? There were fiscal crises that the state legislature faced time and time again, where they expanded the number of uh, offenses that could be considered for fines and fees, discretionary fines and fees, in order to pay off the debt that was created for others by other services. And a lot of these fines and fees go to you know retired legislators or funding highway patrol, that kind of thing, right? And so we have to, you know, at this point, we have to reassess, you know, why are these fines and fees being, uh, being imposed? Is it a justice-related reason or is it a financial reason? Because if, if it's not a justice reason, then it, should ha it has no place in the justice system. Here, I wanna talk about um, what that fines and fees breakdown looks like. So $22 million of the, so I mentioned 32 million here, 22 million of that goes toward residential placement. Then there's probation fees and attorney's fees, uh, you know, around one, one and a half million dollars. Uh, and the rest are, the rest are other fees. But I want to, you know, highlight for you how, uh, how burdensome that residential placement is. A lot of times, like I mentioned before, the county is the, the biggest provider of mental health services for youth, right? And so you have to think, you know, you have to wonder why that is the case. You know, there's, you know, other, uh, there's other failings in our system beyond the youth legal system that, you know, we're not providing mental health services, but residential placement is the solution for some people, for some families uh, and for some kids. And to saddle them with incredible amounts of debt, $22 million in debt across 74 counties, that's an incredible amount of, uh, amount of money. Um, and then beyond that as well, a million and a half dollars of attorney's fees, attorney's fees. You know, this is these are supposed to be the individuals that are helping us um, navigate a very, very complex system. And in turn, kids have to turn around and you know be a, a million dollars in debt. That's uh, that's a serious issue. Uh, and so the Michigan Center for Youth Justice is working uh, with the state legislature right now. We have four bills pending uh, in the in the Michigan House uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, pending even getting a hearing. Uh, and your role as advocates is to your roles as advocate can be to uh, create the urgency for those legislators to address some of these challenges. Not only because um, you know kids are being treated unfairly, but because the state of Michigan is making a four hundred uh, an investment on the scale of four hundred million dollars without any metric for evaluating the success of those uh, of, of that money. Um, so that's the work that we're doing, and I really really hope that you all will use your voice to advocate for for youth justice. Uh, in your communities. And after all that information, it's time for some questions. Time for some questions.
Thank you very much. Um, I, I think my jaw was dropping on uh, uh, some of the things you were saying, you know, and I think, you, you know, ending on that, um, with the fines and fees, like I can't even imagine coming out of jail and finding yourself $80,000 in debt. And, um, and I can really see how that would be such a, um, you know, just such a burden. So I, I want to start with a few questions and then um, uh, one of our, our tech team will, I think there were some questions in the chat that we'll get to as well. The first one is, is data collected and are schools held accountable for suspensions and expulsions that contribute to the school to prison pipeline? So I, this is one of the challenges, like I mentioned with the decentralized system, right? The schools, school boards and, you know, individual schools are also on, you know, in a similar kind of situation. Um, but we have to recognize that we don't have, you know, statewide, uh, like I mentioned, we don't have a statewide system of collecting information on any part of the youth legal system, right? And so when it comes to these deten detention and suspensions uh, and expulsions, I, I can't cite that data for you either, right? Um, and part of that is, you know, my own, uh, you know, lack of knowledge, but I can also tell you for a fact that there isn't a single person in the state uh, that can tell you exactly how many kids are going through the youth legal system on a yearly basis, on an annual basis, right? Um, and so those are the, um, th that's what we're fighting for. And I'm sorry, I can't give you a better answer to your question, but it's just, yeah. it's one of the challenges that we face. Well, yeah, and I think it's a, a really important one. I mean, I, um, uh, so I, I'm interested, I know, you know, you're going to give us some links to legislation and so forth, your position papers and on um, legislation. I'm really, um, that is something that our audience can really use because we write to our, our elected representatives and interact with them. So the second question is what is happening to early release? And I'm not sure what early release e even is. So, um, so I don't have information on that in particular. What I think that question might be referring to is release as a result of COVID-19. Uh, one of the um, things that one of the things that is a part of this presentation that I sometimes add in is um, the extent to which COVID-19 was affecting uh, youth in detention, right? This is, this is incredibly challenging for a number of reasons. I mentioned solitary confinement and isolation lead to bad mental health outcomes for youth. Uh, um, and, you know, COVID-19, what were we asking people to do? People that weren't incarcerated were asked to isolate in their homes. Uh, how, do you how do you isolate kids and detention facilities. Well, you put them in solitary confinement. You know, you can't exactly social distance, you know, in those, in those small rooms. Um, so what ended up happening was that these uh, residential facilities were primed for, uh, for, you know, being super spreaders, right? All the, you know, all these kids were at high risk. Um, and so I don't have, uh, I don't have updated information on what that early release is looking like now. Um, but that is, you know, just for the benefit of everyone else. Uh, that didn't know about that. That is the challenge that a lot of that a lot of facilities faced, uh, and they had to be nimble and they had to address some of those um, some of those situations. Okay. Um, another question is: What is the status of making sure returning citizens have valid ID when they are released? Is there a statewide program? So I. Uh, you know that that's information that would better be that, that's a question that would better be directed to an organization that works with 
um, you know, cr criminal justice more specifically in where the Michigan Center for Youth Justice is focused on uh, on youth uh, in particular. I would check with um, the Michigan, I forget what the, what the acronym means, it's called MySEMI. That's an organization that does a lot of great work. Um, Ordination Outside is an initiative that the Michigan Center for Youth Justice worked on. Those are, um, that's an organization that works with returning citizens that are trying to, you know, get jobs. And it's almost a, um, a support system that uh, returning citizens can work with. Uh, so those are, those are some re really good resources that I can point you to. Can you, uh, what was the second one? It was Nation Outside? Nation Outside. Nation Outside. It's, a, it's an organization in the state of Michigan or an initiative in the state of Michigan that um, is, I think they're working on making it more, um, you know, give it a presence statewide but it, or nationwide, but it gives uh, returning citizens um, uh, access to other returning citizens who have gone through some more challenges um, and, you know, have resources to, to help them. And the first one also, I didn't quite catch the name of the... My sentence. So I can, I can drop a link for my semi, it's the Michigan Collaborative to End Mass Incarceration. Um, they have they have a lot of really good information on this. Okay. Um, it, yeah, if someone wants to put it in the chat, it's michigancollaborative.org is their website. Um, okay. Okay. There was a case recently where a student faced expulsion for not keeping up with homework while in a virtual school setting. Doesn't this have the potential for double jeopardy? I guess I don't quite understand that. Not in school means that you are truant and uh, and faith the youth justice system. Oh, I see what they're saying. Yeah, that's kind of actually that's kind of an interesting thing. Like if you were supposed to, you know, if part of your probation was that you were supposed to be in school and COVID said you had to stay home, what um, what kind of um, problems did that lead to? Or are you aware? Yeah. So yeah, I can I can uh, add a little bit of a color to that conversation. So I see the comment also talks about Senator Irwin being a big supporter. He's been a big supporter of our work. Um, for you know, as long as he's been in office, raised the age, and you know every other campaign. But um, you know, one of the um, challenges that probation—I talked—we talked about probation before. Um, uh, you know, we talked about it in the presentation. Was these are very specific conditions, and a lot of times, you know, even as specific as they can, as the conditions can be, um, you know, the application of those conditions, and if you know someone violates them, you know, to what extent. Are they immediately held, um, you know, held in violation of their probation? Uh, that's all very subjective at the end of the day, right? And so you're talking about the challenges that the system faced when school, you know, when school became virtual, right? Now there's, uh, if you're being required to log onto a Zoom call to show that you're present in class, right? But you don't have good access to Wi-Fi, you could be wanting to go to school, you could be wanting to be present, but then you're unable to do so because the library is closed and you don't have Wi-Fi or a computer at home, right? And so those are challenges that kids face. Um, the other thing about um, about suspensions and, and expulsions, right? This is again, you know, uh, part of the trend of you know making status offenses uh, or, or imposing punishments for status offenses that are greater than the actual level of the offense, right? Some if a kid is skipping school. Um, is the proper, you know, the kid is skipping school, is the proper solution to that to kick the kid out of school? Probably not. But because of the way that our probation system is set up, 
um, that is a solution that's, uh, that is a result and outcome that's possible, right? And so we need to be addressing some of the ways that we set up the system um, because some of the outcomes that are, that are possible and that are likely are actually counterproductive. Uh, and it's, and it's, you know, we have to be intentional with that. Um, yeah. So here's another question. And this one actually sort of occurred to me and kind of was one of those jaw dropping things that they, you know, like if you're an adult criminal, you're entitled to representation and you get a public defender and do adult criminals have to pay for that public defender? I don't think so. Do they? So why so don't kids? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Mary says that, and you know, Mary is the best presenter on the Michigan Center of Youth Justice's information uh, that I've ever seen. Um, one of the things that she says is that public defenders, so-called public defenders, are not so public, right? They are. It's a public defender that was assigned to the youth, but then at the end of the day, they they're on the hook for a lot of the attorney's fees, right? And you know, the way that we set up our system, and and this goes, this really goes to like why we have public defenders in the first place. The way that we set up our system in, in, in the United States, we have a legal system that addresses a lot of nuance. And so in order to navigate that nuance, you need to have a lawyer that can help guide you. Otherwise, you are more than likely to end up getting having an unjust outcome, right? And so a public defender will help you do that. But if you end up having to, you know, you go through the process, a public defender helps you through that process. And then you're on the hook for, you know, $5,000, $10,000 in attorney fees, how much did you actually benefit from that? You know, I, yeah, you didn't end up in detention, but that kid will now be on the hook for that money for a long time, right? Wow. And that creates similar longstanding challenges. So these public defenders aren't exactly public, right? Um, there are organizations that provide indigent defense um, and they do, um, you know, and they do like uh, provide resources for folks that aren't able to, um, are, that aren't able to afford legal representation, but the um, NJDC uh, report that the Michigan uh, Supreme Court asked for, they, you know, it talks about how, you know, the different ways that uh, indigent defense can be provided to, to youth um, in our state, and other states have been able to address this issue, so we should be, we should be as well. Um, another question has just um, popped up, oh, but as you spoke, it occurred to me that, you know, I've read a lot of stories about public defenders often are not um, really paying attention to your case. They're just trying to, you know, uh, so that's an issue too, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing before I, before I answer that, I do want to say like a lot of everyone or a lot of people that are involved in the youth legal system are involved for the right reasons, right? Like no one becomes a public defender because it pays well. No right. one becomes a probation officer because it pays. A lot of these people get, you know, get involved in the system because they have, um, you know, they really care. They really want to do well. They want to do good um, for the youth in our state. Um, but this, the way that the system is set up is that it creates challenges. So these public defenders have, you know, 50 cases, mm -hmm. right? And so it's impossible for them to provide adequate legal representation to each and every single one. And they have to make, you know, value judgments at, you know, at the end of the day. I, I was speaking to um, a public defender a couple of years ago when I was still in, when I was still in college um, to talk about his course uh, or, or his uh, caseload. And he was saying, like, I have to, you know, look at the case on paper and make a judgment as to whether it's a good 
use of my time. Uh, and he's like, it's an impossible situation that I'm in. It's to, you know, the catch 22. And do I put more effort into this and try for a better outcome? Or do I put more effort into a more challenging case that, you know, there's more at risk, right? So, you know, the public defenders face a significant amount of challenge, but I don't know that they bear all of the responsibility uh, responsibility for that. Yeah, wow. Um, okay, so we have one more question. It says, of these issues that you went through, which can be addressed at the state level and which have to be changed at the local level? Um, I, I think you were mostly referring to like a lot of state legislation that, we, that you're working on, is that correct? Yeah, so here is, I, I'm really glad whoever it is asked this question, I'm really glad that you asked because, uh, you know, at the, at the start, I talked about how important it is for us to make system-wide changes, you know, statewide changes that address the entire system. Um, and, you know, a lot of like, like detention or um, data collection, um, fines and fees, right? These are changes that we need to make at a state level. But the provision of some of these community-based solutions, um, the extent to which, for example, restorative justice is used as a tool to, uh, you know, to prevent kids from being incarcerated or from, or from experiencing more significant challenges down the road. Um, these, are, these are things that, uh, that people in your, in, your, in your own communities, that you and your own community can, can advocate for. In Washington County, you guys have a great uh, prosecutor, we've worked with him on, on a number of uh, occasions, Ellie Sabat, who's also an advocate for, um, you know, for restorative justice. Not every community has that. And there isn't a lot of, um, you know, uh, visibility for those, uh, for those off ramps and for those different programs, um, you know, in, in every community. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's something that I would suggest is, uh, is looking into those community-based programs uh, you know, in the community level and finding, uh, finding ways to expand them. Um, one more thing that I'll mention is LGBTQ youth. This is an important issue for me because a number of my friends uh, in high school, you know, were, went through, you know, bullying and uh, mental health challenges. And what that means is, you know, as a result of that, they're at higher risk of going through the justice, uh, of being involved in the youth legal system. I think, and this is this is something that I've seen a number of communities. I was just in Traverse City a few uh, at the end of August, and I was talking to some parents who are activists in their community, and they were telling me about how at there at one point a few years ago there was an incident of a youth um, who was bullied for being um, for being gay, right? And he contemplated suicide and faced a significant amount of challenges, but the community rallied around that youth and really provided you know opportunities for that youth to express himself and to um you know seek help and uh even provide help to other to other youth that hadn't come out or weren't facing similar challenges but could um and that's one of the things that we can do if we can uh treat our youth and our communities with uh with empathy and provide them with opportunities to be themselves and uh, you know avoid some of the mental health challenges that they face just as the fact of being a youth Right, being an awkward kid, right? Uh, if we can address some of those uh, some of those challenges as a community, we can uh, prevent a lot of the problems in our justice system. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the dispute resolution, and we have had a speaker from the dispute resolution center, Brenda Doolin, and yeah. um, 
uh, and she shared the a presentation with um, Victoria Burton Harris, the um, Eli, Ellie, I always want to say Eli, Ellie Savitz, uh, assistant prosecutor. Um, so for folks who are new to this, to our Lunch and Learn program, there are a couple of videos out there that you might want to um, check out on the on criminal justice reform. And also, I was wondering, um, we recently had a presentation that with Sheriff Clayton and um, uh, Delphia Simpson, who's the um, public defender, and um, they were talking about the Criminal Justice Collaborative Council. Are you involved? Is MYCJ, MCYJ involved with that at all? So we, we are really involved with a lot of different organizations um, that are doing work. Uh, I would say pretty much at this point, like any justice organization that um, is active in the state of Michigan, we've been on a coalition with, or we partnered with at some point. Um, so I don't have specific knowledge about our involvement with them, but I would venture a guess and say, yeah, we probably have been involved with them in the past. Yeah, I just have to say, I mean, I'm really so impressed with what the organization does. My mind is blown at how much work there really needs to be done and which we could do at the at the level of youth that would prevent so many more problems as uh, you know as these folks grow up and get into the system. So um, I'm really just very grateful for the um, MCYJ and for the work you do. What I'll suggest is that each of you sign up for our newsletter uh, that goes out every month. We share a lot of information about our work. Um, on our website, you can sign up to volunteer. Um, and we have a lot of trainings on uh, legislative advocacy on, um, you know, and, and a number of other things. So if that's something that you're interested in, reach out to me, find more information on our website, uh, follow us on social media, and, you know, we can really start to change the narrative on youth justice in our state uh, together. Thank you all so much for this opportunity. I'd like to thank everybody for attending today and to mention that we did put a lot of links in the chat, um, and I want to mention one specifically. There's a, the Marshall Project um, has a, a page on youth justice, and if you want to do a deeper dive into criminal justice reform in general and youth justice uh, in particular, it's a great website. They have a lot of resources. We'd like to thank current members of the League of Women Voters for your support. If you're not yet a member, consider joining the League, and supporting the essential work of protecting the right of every citizen to vote. Stay safe, stay well, and stay informed and active in your government. Thank you again, Hussein, and thank you everyone.